I'm so popular. Last week on the show, we discussed the filmography of Miyazaki Hayao, and this week we are looking at one of the most disturbing and lucid depictions of reality The Curse by Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie, which aired from the end of last year to just the beginning of this year. And I'm joined by one of my favorite returning collaborators. Who are you? I'm Jacques Peterson, I host the Unpopular Podcast, and I'm a reporter, a celebrity reporter. So true. Celebrity reporter as in you are the celebrity and you report on the celebrities too. <laughs> Period. What are you doing, girl? Um, chilling with my dog. Um, on my new MacBook, I've finally made the switch to, to Apple products. Uh, I mean, I'm moving to America soon, and I know everyone in America uses Apple, so I'm like throwing PC aside. And I love it. And um, yeah, I'm in my like high-tech girl boss era now. Amazing. I feel like a, an Apple computer suits you. It does, actually, to be honest. Like, as soon as I got it, I'm like, this is just so me. Like, like honestly, <laughs> it's just so fucking easy. Like, I just find Apple products, they're just like, because everything just like fucking syncs together. You don't even have to do anything. Like, you open it up and then it's like, oh, my AirPods are already like synced to this. And then I feel like if I think about my you know, desktop PC, which I bought for gaming originally. Cause I was like, I'm going to be like a Twitch streamer. And then I was like, actually I'm going to do a podcast instead. So like, why did I spend all this money? On like, like the hardcore <laughs> gaming computer, I don't even use it. All I did, I use fucking audacity for a podcast, but I look at that and it just looks like a fucking shit pile. Like the desktop, like everything's it's so just ugly. It's a deeply laggy. unpleasant and rectangular experience i have to use pcs for my job and just touching the interface is so slimy and nerdy but then you get out your little apple computer in california and it's so skinny and glimmering and shiny like apple computers are aesthetically such a rewarding experience you can't go any other way and they're just so like not to make this like an apple ad it's not our sponsor but just the way that everything's like laid out, like it's just so fucking simple. And when you've never used one before, you kind of think like, oh my God, these, you know, what is with this like Apple interface? Like this is like so weird. Why is this over here? But then like once you actually figure it out, you're like, oh my God, this is like so intuitive. Like this is like heaven. So yes, obsessed. I love that. Um, well, you were on one of the most pivotal episodes of my show ever, the Silent Majority episode where we talked about Keikizaka 46 for the first time and I was so glad to have you on because I think it opened a lot of people up to it who would be ideologically opposed <laughs> otherwise and it's been kind of like one of the watershed moments of my show in which we've really pushed forward in re-establishing the artistic canon so I'm so glad to have you back. I love that I love hearing that because yeah I was so we had a really good response to that and of course, I knew that I was interested in it and I was so excited 
to do it with you, but I didn't know that so many people would be receptive to it. And like, I got messages from my listeners that, it, you know, I mostly cover like reality TV and like, I just like rant about life and like things that like piss me off in everyday life and stuff. And certainly my audience are not tuned into the world of, you know, Japanese idol music. And I had all these people going like, yeah, I could have listened to you guys talk about this for like 10 hours. So yeah. Oh, I love yay. that. Well, speaking of the format of your show, which is still incredible every time I listen, I do love your rants about the intricacies of everyday life and the nuisances of having to exist as a consumer. What is pissing you off lately? Um, oh my God, what is fucking pissing me off? Children piss me off um, all the time. So I pay for this really expensive gym in my town because <laughs> people that don't know, basically like during the pandemic, I, I was in Sydney before, huge city. And then I moved back to my like small town where I grew up during the COVID pandemic. And then I've been here ever since and I'm leaving next month to America and it's like, fuck this. I'm like getting to LA, but I've been here for a really long time. And while I'm living in this small town, um, and working from home, I've kind of been like living like I'm rich here. So when I was in Sydney, you know, I couldn't afford to go to like the most expensive hair salon, like the most expensive gym, but like your money goes further in a small town. Mm. So I pay for like the best of everything here where I can. And I go to this like fancy little boutique gym. And the only downfall is all these fucking women, like it's mostly women. They all come with their kids and the kids to the will, gym. Like, Yes, they bring, girl, one woman had a fucking newborn baby in the bassinet. She brought it to the gym. And then, by the way, there's a designated kids area that's like sectioned off behind a little, you know, baby gate thing. They don't even use it. It's like there's a whole part set up for kids. They don't even put their kids there. And she had a goddamn like newborn baby in the middle of the gym, not even like off to the side. And it's like people like walking past with like dumbbells and stuff. It's like, I could literally like, I could drop like 20 kilos on your, it would be dead. Like, <laughs> so I can't, I can't even believe like the bad parenting. And then they have like toddlers and stuff. It'll come and like run and jump, you know, like around where you're trying to work out. And I'm like, honestly, so autistic about the gym because I don't really like working out. And when I do, like I need, like, I can't have people around me. Like I can't have like heaps of noise. Like I can't have a lot. I mean, that's why I pay for this expensive gym. Right. Cause I don't want to line up at like planet fitness, like some peasant, like I want my own space and parents these days, like, sorry, I know I sound like such a boomer, but they literally no. like, they, they do not discipline their children at all. Like they'll let their kids do anything. Like, I don't know about maybe Japan, they're a bit better with their kids, but like in the West, Honey, like you're at a cafe and the kid, the, they'll let a kid run up to your like table and like grab at the sugar or something. And they won't be like, Sam, like, you know, put that down, like come back to mommy. Like they'll just like let the kid do it. So Ooh. yeah, really hating kids lately. Yeah. I saw a child today was putting a postcard in a mailbox and the child was uh, in front of the mailbox. And I stood there for about half a second and the mother was, oh, and she like, quickly shepherds her child away and like, it's like bowing and be like, Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. Like I didn't mean, I was like, Oh no, it's fine. And they, they put my little postcard in and walked away. And that was uh, my experience with children today. So <laughs> well, <laughs> I yeah, Asian children, Asian children know how to behave. Asian parents know how to crack the whip. I mean, I know that in South Korea now they've started putting up um, 
child-free zones everywhere. Like there's like cafes and stuff and it says like, you just cannot have children here. I um, love that. Yeah, I support it. Well, we are thinking a little bit about the strange and dreamlike realities of being a 21st century person in the world with today's subject matter, The Curse. I fell in love with the show. I am a big fan of the Safdie brothers. I thought Good Time was okay, but I thought Uncut Gems was a really unique, stressful, and upsetting movie. And I actually got into... Uh, the Safdie brothers, because the composer they use for most of their works, uh, Daniel Lopatin, otherwise known as One of Tricks Point Never, is an electronic music mu musician I really like. And they have a very cutthroat and bleak and unfriendly uh, view of the way people talk with each other, how they interact, and the superficial layers that kind of come together to constitute our lives on Earth. And this show didn't disappoint at all. Um, but the really interesting sort of uh, artistic introduction to the curse that differentiates it from the rest of the Safdie brothers' output is the addition of Nathan Fielder, who is uh, one of the most transfixing and contentious and a little bit unnerving like comedians and public figures we've had in recent memory, but... Now, before we get into the curse, did you watch any of like Nathan Fielder's stuff before? Okay, so I, yes, I know who he is. I haven't seen any of the Safdie Brothers stuff, not even Uncut Gems. And I was going to, like, again, it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm going to get around to watching that and you never do. And then I was going to like binge it all before I did mm. this. And then I knew that you would have seen it all. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to like <laughs> leave it that I don't know anything about them and come at it from like a different Perfect. perspective of like not knowing what they've done before. But so Nathan Fielder, I think I've I think I've had Nathan Fielder wrong. So I remember when he first came out with Nathan for you mm -hmm. and my hipster, you know, housemate like that I had back then. Like God love him. He was a great guy, but he liked the worst like American lib comedy shit. Like he would watch, you know, Saturday Night Live every weekend from like America and just like the worst of like hipster American comedy. And he, of course, was into Nathan for you. So I immediately lumped it in with like that genre. Yeah. And I, you know, I saw like one minute of it and I'm like, this seems like mean, like, you know, why is he being so mean to these like poor people? Like this is nasty. And I think I just had some like superiority <laughs> complex <laughs> about it. So I wrote him off and then he was getting all this buzz again when he came back with the rehearsal. And, you know, everyone was going, oh, my God, like, it's so brilliant. And I'm like, maybe I should, like, give this guy a try. But it wasn't until, like, The Curse. And then I'm like, okay, like, maybe I should go back and watch some of his stuff. Like, he yeah. seems, like, really smart, actually. Did you revisit any of it or not yet? Not yet. Yeah, so I'm a big fan. And I was watching Nathan For You as it was coming out um, in the United States because uh, one of my good friends, Kyle, who's been on the show a few times, uh, he was a big fan and introduced it to me. And I remember that we would watch it with... Um, my roommate at the time, and she had a major, uh, she really liked the show. She thought Nathan was cute, which most women do. And she also, I remember, had a through line of racial anxiety about the show. And she would bring up how often he seems to pick on immigrant small business owners in the L.A. area. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, she's right. But I feel like 
I have some kind of nerve that I want to defend this, but I wasn't quite sure how until I realized uh, much after the fact and only after rewatching the show quite recently that there is actually nothing to defend. He is doing that 100% on purpose, and that's why it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they kind of do that in in The Curse. I mean, it's like scathing. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Towards minorities. I don't know what it is. Nathan has this sort of cold, gelid gaze towards American multiculturalism. Maybe it's something about his background as a Canadian or some sort of philosophical element about his understanding of the world. But when he is creating his output of uh, these TV shows that he's done so far... The way that America exists in the show is as this lumpy, unfortunate, overweight, and gross, upsetting melting pot of multiculturalism. And it is such an unflattering depiction of the country that it honestly does feel shockingly reactionary. Yeah, I was... I, I was completely shocked watching it. So I love Rare Candy. I'm a huge fan of their show. And um, I think it was Glenn was tweeting about about um, the curse at first. I thought, oh, you know, maybe I should check this out. Like literally, and I was going in blind. Like I didn't really know much else other than Rare Candy had recommended it. And then when I put it on, I, you know, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And I, it's kind of in this new, um, it's, you know, I, I don't want to use the word woke, but like it, it's this new genre of like anti-woke reactionary mm. programming that's really been coming out sort of in the last, you know, year or two, I guess, maybe like beginning with like White Lotus. I mean, there's White Lotus, there's The Idol, there's Blonde. I would include like even Terrifier 2. Mm. There's a lot more of it like coming out. And this is um, definitely like the latest entry. And I think maybe the most extreme, <laughs> most shocking mm. I completely agree with all of that. Um, to contextualize the show a little bit, it's an interesting piece of metafiction because, as I've stated, Nathan Fielder is a veteran of reality TV, having two of his own shows, Nathan For You and The Rehearsal. And The Curse is both his directorial debut for a fictional uh, project and also his debut as a uh, straight-to-terms actor. He's not doing the sort of uh, character Sasha Barrett Cohen portrayal of this public comedian that he does on his other uh, pieces of work. Here he is truly acting as somebody else. And the setting of the show is in what? It's New Mexico? Arizona? Yeah, I forgot. In Española. Española, um... yeah. And it's these, this uh, newly wedded couple who are attempting to put a show together in HT, HGTV uh, about flipanthropy, about flipping old busted houses and turning them into eco-shrines. And the show depicts the production of the show, the continuation of their relationship, and with it, it is the all-seeing eye of what the world looks like these days. It has a very unique aesthetic quality of being filmed constantly through windows in reflections from a distance in a very thin ratio. And the entire experience is isolating and upsetting and creepy and cringe to such a cosmic level that it feels like a religious piece of work. 
Yeah, I mean, I was when I got into a few episodes, I was like, it's like David Lynch did the comeback. I think it's the best way to kind of sum it up. Mm. And the cringe is so, oh my God. So I think there's an episode two or three where um is it Benny Safdie, who is the mm. he plays producer, the, yeah. the sleazy producer. And he uh he had an accident because he was drink driving and he killed his his wife or his fiance. Yes. And then he's driving this date home after he's had a few drinks and she's like, doesn't want to get in the car because he's just told her this story about how he's, you know, his wife died. And then he's like, no, I'm fine. And he's like doing a breathalyzer while they're driving. And I was literally on the couch, like squealing and like mm. grabbing the pillow to like bury my face in it. Like it was that, that fucking tense. I mean, you know, the the comeback is known for its, you know, very cringe scenes. And this is just like another fucking planet from like, this is like, so like, if you think of the tension on the comeback, they've ratcheted it up so much that it's like unbearable. Yeah, the way that you said like David Lynch and the comeback, this does feel like a perfect continuation of those two ideas of this awkward celebrity performativity that is fundamental to how we interact with famous people, as well as kind of the artistic and avant-garde dreamlike depiction of the world through David Lynch. And I was thinking a lot about the comeback, which also famously features all of these haunting shots of the producer slowly lurching into the frame, the cameras appearing like phantoms in the mirror, and the cringe is unbelievable. Cringe is a really interesting concept to me because I have a little bit of a strained relationship with it because I think in one hand, cringe as a concept is sort of a new millennial and Zoomer style of communication gathering where people are trying to earnestly express themselves and to create something meaningful from their own heart can be censored with this sort of nebulous and ineffective word. But there is a unique quality of cringe, which is that you recognize some part of yourself or some part of your own worldview refracted back at you in this confrontational and disgusting way that evokes the sensation of cringe. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, I could... I actually related to a few of the characters too. Me like, too. I mean, especially to uh, Emma Stone with her. And I've actually, you know what? I've been in leftist mode over like Palestine and it's completely like I, so I agree that I try to stay away from politics in the sense that like, it's kind of a waste of time, right? When you follow right. like the day to day of it, like it's just kind of like stupid. And sometimes they get sucked into it. And I'm like, why did you like waste your time on that? Why aren't you like reading a good book or like, there's so many more like productive, amazing experiences that you can have. Um, outside of that. And then post October 7th, I've literally, I've turned into like a blue haired, like <laughs> leftist activist, like at the demonstrations and stuff. And there's a part of me that feels cringed for doing it. And then watching, you know, Emma Stone, like I was kind of like seeing some of myself in that. And then I also saw myself in, um, you know, the, the sleazy producer, because I work with a lot of reality people and I've actually developed a reality show that I've been like shopping around in the US and, you know, I was doing all the casting and stuff for it. And 
I could see myself in him a lot. And the way that, especially with my job as well. So the reality show and then my job, like I'm always coming up with ideas for people for either if they're on reality TV, because I know like a lot of the housewives and stuff like that. I'm always like, do this for the show, do that for the show. And I'm like literally always thinking in that mode. And he was like that in the series too. Like he, it was almost like he couldn't switch into human mode sometimes. Mm. And when people would be vulnerable, he would want to exploit it for, yeah. you know, entertainment and for the, and for this, you know, flip-anthropy, flip, flip I can't even say <laughs> it, series that they were making, which later gets uh, rebranded into... Um, the Green Queen. Uh, yeah, the Green Queen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I really did feel like a lot of these characters as well, especially as, like, a product of... Um, being born in the late 1990s, this kind of political thinking has been ingrained in the world around me since my high school experience. And basically everything has been attempting to reproduce the kind of political worldview that this Emma Stone character, Whitney, has. And it's a really overwhelming experience to see it so plainly put forth. But aside from that, I do humanly relate with her as well because... Her kind of like lust for uh, fame and artistic recognition and her unbelievably disgusting exhibitionism and her willingness to exploit every part of her interpersonal life for public attention is something I do every day on this show. Like the entire podcast is very similar to Green Queen in the way that I'm very willing to put the most disgusting and unfortunate parts of my personality and life and things that people don't even want to hear about on display if it gets me some recognition as an artist. So I know exactly what you mean. And that's what makes the cringe in this so powerful. Well, you know, at first when she's going through the show, she's obviously just presenting herself. Like she's very kind of trying to control her image and I don't want this in the show. I don't want that in the show. We need to show this because it shows more about activism and it's like important for the community. And then there's sort of a turning point where the producer almost like dangles the carrot in front of her that like maybe the show is not going to be picked up. So we actually need to get more conflicts between you and, and your uh, husband. Yeah, yeah. And your husband. And then she immediately like just starts throwing him under the bus and just turns into a completely different person uh, to get content for this show. And that is a, that's a very common thing, like you were saying with your podcast, but that's just very common for anybody that's in the public eye and wants to be famous. And the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, the latest season, um, there is this girl that infiltrated the show, essentially. She was like a fan and she was like trolling the cast and wormed her way onto the cast. And now they've exposed her and it was so dramatic and incredible. And I, it was like, it was like an HBO series, honestly. And at the reunion, they're playing all these like leaked voice notes of her and it's like before she got on the show and she was like, cause she didn't have money or anything. She's literally like scammed her way onto this cast. And she has these leaked voice notes where she's like, Kim Kardashian used to be a closet organizer and look at her now. I'm going to be a star and like plotting and scheming to become this reality star. And she, you know, she achieved her dream and people are like hating on her and she is awful, but that's, the reality of people that are putting their shit out there, whether it's on a podcast or you're trying to get on a reality show or whatever, like we all kind of want that. And 
we we would all to a certain extent um maybe you know kind of sell our soul in some ways or debase ourselves in certain ways for that Mm. I think that's really prescient and beautiful. And there is sort of a, a noble dignity to being willing to do that. And if you think about the comeback in Lisa Kudrow's character, Valerie Cherish, on that show, there is a, a quiet dignity about her and her lust for fame that you do respect her in a lot of ways. I'm not sure I feel like I respect Whitney, but because she fails so atrociously and is obviously so untalented and a terrible hack, but um, there are all of these scenes depicting her interacting with various people who are actual artists and what have you, and her desperate hunger to also be seen as someone comparable to their level is very uncomfortable, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, when um, she she has this this uh native american friend uh is it cara that's right yeah and she's a native american artist and then at some point whitney starts saying that her homes her passive eco-friendly homes are actually like art pieces and she she's everything she starts transforming into like an art piece to to copy her friend and obviously it's not and she was already called out for like ripping off the design of the homes from like some other artist like she's just a fucking leech mm. um and i think kind of what makes her different to a valerie cherish and and on the comeback on the comeback they they did a really good job of humanizing them quite a bit, like Valerie and the rest of the cast members. Like at the beginning of the comeback, you're like, oh my God, yeah, this is so cringe. Like she's so desperate. And then, you know, sort of halfway through, like she's really growing on you. And then, you know, you kind of love her. And then you're like rooting for her by the second season. She's like the hero. And I think that what made the curse different was yeah i do think they had humanizing moments for like whitney and and all the characters but they Mm. had like slivers of this like it wasn't kind of it didn't overwhelm the how awful they were as well and i think it was just such a scathing show towards everybody and i think it was um like i listened to jack's uh jack did a podcast on it yeah i haven't listened to it yet because i didn't i didn't want to have my opinion informed by his so i was trying deliberately to wait to listen to it oh okay well i was just he he felt like he was a little bit more sympathetic to whitney and asha and he felt like it was it was worse towards the minorities than them which i think it was horrible to everybody i think it was horrible to the to the mexicans to the african immigrant to jewish people i think there was like a lot of shade towards jews in there to the white liberal karen like i just think it was fucking brutal to everybody yeah this there's not a single i mean I think if I were to say that anyone is something close to likable or close to someone that you would feel sympathy for, it would be Asher probably the most uh, because his struggle to me seems like the most earned in some ways. But nonetheless, every single character in this show does something terrible and not even morally reprehensible, but humanistically repugnant, like things that are just actual atrocities against the human species itself that i completely agree with you that i think this show is um almost like uh 
sort of like Title IX, and it's a way that it just hates everyone. Um, but I, it, I'm glad you brought up the concept of the immigrants on the show. This is something that is really fascinating to me because the depiction of everything from Native Americans to Mexicans and Africans that are in the United States in this kind of nothing town in the middle of nowhere, this is one of the most uncanny and I don't even know how to describe this. It's so true to life and it doesn't give anyone glamorization or extra points for them being from somewhere else or for being some sort of uh, diversity qualifier. Everyone is a pig. And the way that it depicts that for these, Im uh, it's hard to talk about, but like these immigrant characters, it's like they are shown as they truly are in the real world. That's what I can say. Yeah, um, it shows, I mean, it shows everyone for kind of who they are, which is why it's so shocking, because it's actually real. Um, and, you know, we all know the the sort of woke rules of Hollywood with the diversity casting where it's, you know, the white person's just the only bad one. And then the the minority is like the hero, even like White Lotus, which is, you know, genius. And, you know, it's really incredible. Um you know, season one with Jennifer Coolidge and then the black masseuse is sort mm. of, you know, more of a hero. I mean, I, they change it a little bit for season two because then the that the mixed race girl was like the most evil one. Sydney Sweeney's friend was sort of yeah. the, the ultra villain. So they course correct a little bit with that. But yeah, we're so used to um, minorities de depicted in like, you know, a, a comically, uh, you know, noble and generous, yeah, a, a loving, yeah, way, saintly <laughs> Saint Floyd. Well, you know, I was recently not to make it about George Floyd, but I was um, reflecting on a lot of the BLM stuff. And now there's sort of a counter narrative to that. And there was this new documentary that came out called um, the fall of Minneapolis. And it was just basically about how all of the rioters just like destroyed Minneapolis and that Derek Chauvin was sort of wrongfully in prison. And it's like very biased in the other direction. Um, but you, one of the takeaways from it is just that, you know, like George Floyd was a degenerate, like that's not to take away, you know, that he was uh, killed and all of that stuff, like just separate to that. But then the way that they repressed sort of his criminal record and that he did porn and that, you know, like there was like he was a fucking junkie and had, you know, been arrested before and he had held a knife, uh, you know, he'd, he either held a knife at a pregnant woman or he robbed a woman in front of like a toddler at knife point and stuff. And he got this saint edit. And this is, um, you know, the curse is not Saint Floyd. It's showing everyone, including the liberal Karens. And um I was reading some of the the mainstream reviews of this before, mostly just about the endings. It has a wacky ending, which we'll get into, and I wanted to see some of the different interpretations mm -hmm. of it. And every mainstream publication, whether it was The New Yorker or Vanity Fair, et cetera, they would all point out um, how it makes fun of white liberals and you know, woke woke liberal Karens and do-gooders, but, like, none of them would acknowledge that... Um, 
that it took equal shots at you know the native americans and the the africans and and on and all of that um well it's something that you're really right about especially with like the george floyd saint narrativation is that the left in general not just liberals all of it every thinking that is set in that genre of politics has this magical alchemy where what they want to do is not show the whole complexity of the human being and instead they want to turn it into these extraordinarily simple like late disney films where you have easy to understand palatable righteousness for the characters and archetypes in the real world that you think deserve this public recognition and a sort of justice for historical wrongs or whatever it is that they imagine. And like the fact is, is it, someone can be not necessarily a good person and they can commit horrible, awful crimes in their life or not really contribute to society. And then they can be unfairly, you know, killed in cold blood. And that is the way the world works. But more than that, the way these politics work is that they do that magical enchantment and delete all sins and wipe them clean with blood. And so watching these characters who would in any other format be put into the Bible right away and seeing them dragged down to the muddy pits of the world that we actually inhabit is deeply satisfying and uncomfortable and cringy and honestly scary. You know, I, I did call this a, a horror series, and I, I stand by that because the, the cringe and the stress and the tension and the, like, panopticon of unfortunate behavior that we are witnessing from all angles is actually terrifying and scary in a really inventive new way. And I'm so glad that this has the wherewithal and the fortitude to truly see it that way. Yeah, um... No, I, I totally agree with all that. And it, this was another show where actually when I watched it, I was a little bit shocked that it even got made. Even Me though too. We are getting more, even though we are getting more of this, I was This is the most like, extreme. The most. And even, um, it's the most extreme in its messaging, but it's also, um, you know, it's, it's like not for normies in this style. Like there are, you know, long spaces with people not talking and there's, you know, subtext and it's like, not, a, it's not a fucking Netflix series. And I actually was asking a few normies. I was curious because I just wanted to see, I just wanted to see what the masses were thinking of it because mm. the thing, what we have now, right. Like say with blonde, with what a um, extreme reaction blonde got part of that was because it was on Netflix and people have been trained to believe that, okay, everything on Netflix is for me and it's easy to watch and it's a one size fits all. And I can just mindlessly scroll through Netflix and anything that I choose is going to be really easily, easy to digest. Whereas in the past, if you want to watch like an art films, like Blonde was, you had to like go to the fucking art house section of Blockbuster or you had to, um, you know, crack open the Criterion collection or anything. And then people get so shocked and offended when they turn on like a, a mainstream platform, like a Netflix, and they're subjected to something like Blonde or The Idol. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what do you, oh my God, why is there so much sex in this? And they freak out. And I think something like The Curse 
people think, okay, like Nathan Fielder, he's a little quirky, but I do think he's funny. And oh my God, I love Emma Stone. Like, oh yeah. They think that they can just like, oh, I loved Uncut Gems, which is closer to that kind of Netflix thing that you're talking about, even though I think it's quite experimental in a lot of ways, but yeah, the Showtime debut of this, people can watch on like Showtime Go or like whatever fucking app that is, you know, (laughs) There, there it is. And these recognizable figures like oh quirky nathan oh emma stone so good in la la land and then all of a sudden they are slapped in the face with a direct knife cut of cold artistic cruelty in isolating long shots (laughs) i totally get it it's amazing they don't even they don't they can't even even recognize it that way they they just think it's trash they just throw it away immediately it's too foreign like i asked um I asked one person who was in sort of the reality TV world. So she watches sort of a lot of, yeah, a lot of main, just whatever the most mainstream normie stuff is. And she was like, I couldn't even get through the first episode. And I thought I would love it because she's thinking, oh, how funny. It's a comedy. It has Emma Stone. It's a, they're making a reality show. Like this will be, you know, this will be like the comeback, um, which I mean, not that the comeback is like a dumb show, but it's like, that's a show that you more people can yeah, you know, it's easier access. It's easier um, because there's so much you know, to take from this, where this is more of a challenging watch. And um, yeah, I, I don't think the normies are getting it. I mean, it's the same no. reaction as well with, um, with White Lotus, which was obviously a blockbuster hit, but the the masses, if you followed the press cycle around it and everything, it was that they were covering it as a murder mystery who done it. I know. Who's I've always killer? said that. Like when I when I did my episode about it last year, I said, you know, like the reason that this show is able to get away with so much is because it's masquerading as a murder mystery with intrigue and plot suspense, when in fact it's very deliberately intense social commentary. And it's really interesting to see the curse kind of do the inverse is that where it is hiding itself behind so many layers of very accomplished and I think cinematic artistic direction that is so art house that it really does abstract the viewer to the point that if you're not already versed in this kind of like filmmaking that you just can't get it. A hundred percent. And not to sound pretentious, but it's like, you know, if if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't like period. Um, And I love that that Emma Stone did this and I haven't watched poor things yet. So I can't comment on that. I haven't either. Yeah. I mean, it seems like she's obviously making more adventurous choices now. And she is probably one of the reasons that it got made and that they were able to have as much. I mean, obviously Nathan Field was huge. The Safdie brothers are really big. And I think just all of them kind of coming together um, with that amount of star star power and clout, um, they were able to get this made. And I think, when it comes to stuff like this in Hollywood, you don't get that many chances to do the sort of the artsy show that you want with a mm-hmm. good budget and on a big network. Like you might get like one shots. So I don't know if we'll even see something like this again for a long time. Yeah, but be... it's funny because I keep saying that too. And I remember when I finished watching Twin Peaks The Return, my first thought was like, it is such a miracle that this got to exist also on Showtime. But I think, you know, every once in a while, the, the, the stars can align and make something like this happen. And it is a little bit of a miracle. But simultaneously, I do have more faith that there's going to be more stuff like this in the future. And it's invigorating and exciting. And because the rest of the mudslide and swamp of pop culture is so facsimile and 
ugly and fake and just this, you know, corporate guise of a commercial for nothing, it is exciting to see something like pierce through it and it stands out so much. Yeah, and I hope, um, I mean, what will help it will be if it sweeps the awards circuit. And um, I really, really hope Emma Stone wins. Not that awards mean anything because it's stupid and fake, but, like, her fucking performance, I mean, that tight smile that she gives, that tight fake smile that she gives throughout the whole show is, it might be, like, my favourite facial expression I've ever seen Mm. in TV or film, (laughs) like... It's so perfect. She's so tightly wound. She says so much. Like, she doesn't have to even have to speak. It's all in her expression. I mean, Lisa Kudrow gave that similar. That's why Lisa Kudrow is thinking to keep ma- taking it back to the comeback. But it's like, you can keep watching the comeback over and over and you notice like a little thing in just Lisa Kudrow's, like, in, you know, maybe her eye moves to the mm. side or something and it like tells so much. And I really think Emma Stone was performing, you know, at that level. Um, Yeah, this is truly one of the best female performances of all time, in my opinion. And I mean that completely earnestly. I have a habit of uh, hyperbolizing and saying, I've never said anything like this, which is kind of true. But this time I really mean it. This is up there with Isabel Huppert and the Piano Teacher and Lisa Kudrow in the comeback. This is definitely like a direct successor to that kind of performance. And the expression that I think about the most on her face in all of this show is this neutral look of all-consuming entropy and indifference and emotional processing in which she cools every feature of her face and opens her eyes in this glacial, frigid way in which you can tell that she is deliberately building this wall in front of her so that she can scream on the inside as she becomes totally undone. It happens like five or six times, and it is so haunting. I have seen it in my dreams. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, when I was, um, before when I was saying I was obsessed with her tight frozen smile, her anxious, you know, fake, everything's fine in the, you know, face of humiliation. Um, In the finale, when she has the baby, she gives birth, and she's actually genuinely happy, and she's beaming. It's completely different it's like Mm. the most natural like i'm filled with joy and happiness and love and i think that was intentional to like the the way that she smiled the the two you know very opposing ones from the beginning to the end and i just thought oh my god she's like literally such a fucking brilliant actress i didn't really know that she was this good because i don't think i've even seen that many Emma Stone films when I think about it. Like, yeah, I don't what watch... comes to mind? I saw La La Land on the plane for the first time recently, and I thought it was kind of like funny and conservative and a little reactionary. Um, she was like, what, an easy A? That was a big uh, one yeah, for I've her. Seen easy A. Um, um, that might be it. That literally might be the only movie I've ever seen from her is Easy A, which I watched at the theater. I didn't watch Zombie Land because. Oh, I've I... seen that, but I didn't even realize that was her. Okay, great. Oh, the house bunny. Well, I've seen that. We love. I've the seen house that bunny. too. Uh, Anna Ferris was the big one. She plays kind of a nerd in that, right? Okay, and then uh, she was in Super Bad, which I've never seen. I think I've seen Super Bad, but yeah, I have not seen that many. Given she's been in a lot of movies, and oh, she's in Spider Man. Okay, wow. Oh, she was uh, in the um, Corella movie. I never. Okay, wow. She's like in everything. Actually, great. Good to know. <laughs> a lot of shit. Well, you know, she's clearly in her art house era with poor things and yeah. the curse. <laughs> we love to see it. 
but no, it's it's breathtaking to see this performance, and it is so exciting to see it applied to something so honestly revolutionary. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of like the specifics of like what makes this show so cutting, and I think a lot about the sort of like surface level tension and like the general noise of the show, which is all of these people in COVID masks. Uh, fretting about and anxiously attending to camera equipment as um, people of all sorts of backgrounds, uh, to say it in one way or another, are kind of like encroaching upon like the rest of the show's content. They have this very deliberate stress between Asher and Whitney, who are, is, of course, Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone. And they are sort of um, these like transplants who maybe went to L.A. and came back or et cetera, et cetera. And they are quite noble class strivers who are trying to revolutionize this little town of Española. And the people that they are trying to help are these like sort of. I Oh, my God. They're like bovine. Everyone, they, everyone that they help have these dead expressions in their eyes and a general confounded confusion. And the tone of that is so real. It was exactly how I felt going to Walmart when I went to America in September. Yeah, well, I was saying before how I moved back to my small town and I actually just the other like there's two areas in my town there's like the main street and this sort of like the more poor area which is actually kind of where i grew up um and i went back to the shopping mall in the poor area more like for people watching and yeah everyone is just i mean it's not diverse there it's all white it's all white trash and they're just like lumbering around um with you know blank expressions it's either blankness or anger mm. um <laughs> <laughs> they're angry at something otherwise it's just kind of like vacant and they just sit down in the food court and you know shovel some like you know butter chicken into their gobs and then come back from the best and less with you know and um that's a lower that's you know lower class lower socioeconomic people and that's what they looked like in <laughs> in this and doesn't mean that they're bad people, by the way, because I think, like I said, they give shreds of humanity. It's not like everyone's horrible, actually. A lot of people have nice moments and some endearing moments. Yeah. Um, but they are just shown as people are. But this is really the harsh reality of things. And especially in the United States, I think above anywhere else I've ever been in the world, there is an unfortunate static haze in which people are lumbering around like Romero zombies, honestly. And it is this kind of like consumption-based sadness. And I don't want to like blame the United States for its consumerism or anything, because that's also what makes the country so sparkling and exciting most of the time. But when it gets reduced to this kind of like multicultural slop and getting shoveled out into poor areas it takes on a very unfriendly and repulsive texture and i've always described this to my friends as like the door explorer blanket it's like you can imagine this frumpy sticky blanket with like patches that you know doesn't smell good was made for like 45 cents in china and then purchased at a walmart in some rural 
like town in the United States by a certain kind of person. And this show has that odor reeking off of it in all of its corners. And it's not really about those people, but the articulate presence of them really evoked that to me. And it is very distressing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard living. Like, not everyone's a fabulous homosexual. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> no. people... <laughs> people aren't aspirational. They just, they go to work, they go home, they watch TV, they sit around, they buy their groceries, next event. And that is, like, generally what's happening in the world. And when you try to live a piloting, exciting life of novelty, uh, you kind of just push that to out of your vision and then looking at it here as it just keeps enforcing its way in which is i honestly think like the mission of liberalism is to bring that culture and equalize everyone in that sense oh my god so scary yeah but then you see um you know you see emma stone uh whitney and asher coming in to gentrify the place with their grotesque uh passive homes which is just these giant mirrored boxes that are stuffy inside because they can't have air conditioning and they have to be like the air it's like pressurized. a thermos it's like yes. a thermos <laughs> <laughs> you can't even open the door because it'll let the air you know all of the awful um it'll just change the temperature and fuck the whole thing up nothing works just everything in there is a fucking piece of shit like there's even a scene at the end where she's getting air conditioning in because she's like finally admits that she, she's getting hot in there and um, and you know, she's going to just build all these fucking stupid ass homes. And then it's like, where do those people go? I mean, their life's going to be even worse than it is now. <laughs> Once they get put, they're going to be squatting like the African immigrant in the, in their house. Like those people that have lived there. Yes. They have boring bovine lives. And then when someone comes in and builds these, you know, eco-friendly passive homes that don't even work, and then they'll probably get abandoned at some point. She's just gonna make the place even shitter. Oh, yeah, totally. And this is a, a worthwhile thought uh, to investigate because, you know, I'm talking a little bit about like this, like superstitious and sinister encroaching of like NPC vibes that is coming all over the place on the show. But then you also try to imagine, let's put someone in to make it better, or let's try to change it, or like, let's fix it. Let's make a new world. And then you do that. And like you said, it's actively worse because under this thought praxis, you aren't actually enriching anyone's lives or doing anything good. You are obstructing terrifying, ugly, shining mirrors to how ugly you are. And I thought that the sort of impetus of the show to depict Nathan and Emma Stone in that way and feature them as do-gooders and these generally agreeable, like, leftists, like, Everything that they're saying are things that most people would agree with. And they do a wonderful job on the show of giving them lots of room to constantly prattle about the details of their politics and how those overlap with Native American land rights and multiculturalism and class struggle. They give so much speech to that that it just comes across as even uglier and more repugnant. Yeah, um... I totally lost my train of thought. Hang on. Um, yeah, there's a really good, now I remember, there's a really good scene with uh, Whitney's parents. So Whitney's parents are these slumlords that 
uh, you know, they own all, all these apartments, but they have a lot of money and that's where she's getting all of her money from. And she's always arguing with them because she doesn't want them around her project. She doesn't want to be associated with them. She doesn't want the bad press of them being slumlords and, you know, reigning over all of these apartment blocks mm-hmm. filled with, you know, Mexicans and, and you know, people that have poured over the border. And she wants to build her eco-friendly paradise and she's fighting with them and then they they're like if you don't approve of um something like if you don't approve oh, my dog's sneezing chunky chunky <laughs> cute yeah sorry <laughs> if you guys could hear that in the background um they're like if you don't approve of what we're doing like you're more than welcome to like take over the buildings and you know do it how you would want to do it and make it better and she doesn't want to do that where she actually probably could go in there and like improve conditions for them and it would be a lot of fucking hard work because imagine imagine how many fucking properties you have to manage um and she could do that and she doesn't want to do it because no she wants to have an hgtv show where she's seen as an artist that's built these revolutionary uh passive homes that don't even fucking work and no. that she's building all over Española, which is going to push everybody out of the fucking area anyway. And then the homes aren't even going to work in the end. And it's just all a fucking giant monument to her ego and narcissism. And one of the best moments in the show for me is when they finally have someone who is on board for their batshit stupid housing project. They basically have to import people from L.A. who want to be on TV to pretend to live in the houses to get anyone to go on the show in the first place. And when they finally have someone who seems that he is completely on board for all the politics and is really excited, and it turns out that he is a, you know, Blue Lives Matter, all-American guy who loves cops and supports what they do, um, but also supports, like, the land rights of the Native Americans. And it's so exciting to see that, like, contradiction exist in a person and then watch as Whitney, this Emma Stone character, is just squealing and squirming and sweating, trying to pick apart what parts of her liberal politics can make it so that this person can either live or not live there. Yeah, they they build that up so much where they desperately need to find a buyer for this home and they can't get anyone. And then Nathan Fielder, suggests this guy and she's like he has a blue lives matter flag on his truck absolutely not and he pushes for it to happen and then this character turns out to be the best person on the sorry chunky stop that <laughs> hang on a second let me just this is like never happened yeah you had, to discipline, one, you had to give discipline. me a chunky break hang on yeah let's take a quick break anyway that's fine okay i'll continue my thought when we come back yeah let's do that
Yes, yeah, so I was just saying, um, so they end up selling it to this conservative guy, but he kind of represents this new, this sort of like new right that um, they have a lot of conservative values, but you're not just some fucking hick. Like you still care about the environment. Um, he's like very out of the box and she realized that they, they share a lot of like similarities, but just the fact that he's like blue lives matter and conservative, she's just like spinning the fuck out. And he's played by Dean Kane. That's right. Who, yeah. Who is one of the few out uh, conservatives in Hollywood. And, you know, he played Superman back in the day and now he, I think he just does like Christian movies and lifetime. Like Melissa films. Joan Hart. Yeah, pretty much. But they obviously, I mean, he was clearly in there because he's actually is conservative. Um, and I just thought that was like brilliant fun, like stunt casting. Yeah, great stunt casting. And it's really beautiful to see that. And it's so obvious and like flagrant in making that kind of move that you just can't ignore it. And it's really baffling to me how, because you, you said you were like read some of the New York Times reviews and stuff. None of them see it at all. It goes right over their head. The show casts this transfixing spell where it's like either it's too high art and you can't perceive it at all. Or if you're like a culture reporter for like the NYT, it's so high art that you think it's trying to appeal to your personal political mission. Well, the thing is as well is that some of them may pick up more of the themes, but they're not allowed to say that. Like they can't, they can't write that down in the no. new york times you know what i mean i mean we were talking i think this was when we were recording sirens earlier um i think this was either on sirens or i can't remember where or we did it on the main show it's all a blur now honey but <laughs> i was just saying it's like very different when you're a normie going to like a protest for something versus if you like work in the media like there's just all these like rules of things you can't do and you can't say so if you're writing a piece for the new york times or the new yorker or the cut or wherever and you have to acknowledge some of the like racist themes, I guess, in this, like you can't say that unless you're condemning it and you're doing a hit piece that's all about the the problematic new show that, you know, must be yanked off the air because totally. it's so deeply offensive, but you can't actually write about it in a complimentary way or even a neutral way where you just acknowledge it. Like you either have to destroy the show like they did with the idol with the just avalanche of hit pieces on that. Um, or just pretend it doesn't exist. Yep. And uh, it's really incredible. I think about like the artistic direction with all of these like mirror shots. I, I'm really obsessed with them. There are these unsettling shots that are like even recorded from inside other people's houses as they're like staring at TV and then awkwardly into the camera where all the action is being recorded from outside. It's really a miracle that Nathan Fielder being the director of these was able to come across like so well with this truly breathtaking cinematography. And the show is this sort of the biblical level mirror, in my opinion. Mirrors are a theme that keep coming up on this season of the show for some reason between like Common Rider Ryuki and like Ravel and now this. But it, to me, it is like this very aggressive reflection of what's actually happening. And what it's displaying is like this Sodom and Gomorrah, like Old Testament uh, view of the world and the rot in it that is thus uh, shown to be this like awkward multicultural liberalism that just doesn't work at all and 
the show kind of starts peeling even more into that sense of biblical spectacle with this ongoing thread throughout the show, which is the eponymous curse. And one of the uh, scary African girls in like a total like magical black woman stereotype move puts a curse on Nathan in the very first episode of the show. And a lot of the dramatic tension is if that curse is real or not. Uh, people were really fixated that in these aforementioned like New York Times reviews and everything. But what did you make of that? Um, I actually kind of, well, I didn't really think of it as anything. I thought it was more in his head. And then obviously they have this like crazy surrealist ending, which to be honest, I couldn't really even make sense. I didn't really get it. I was like zoning out, I think, because it just went for so long of him stuck on the roof. <laughs> we'll we'll um, get there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But um, no, I, I did, wasn't even thinking of it, to be honest, that much other than just that I felt like it was he was his own worst enemy because he was just completely obsessing over it and he was letting it destroy his life in the way that you can when you when you fixate over things that you yeah i wasn't be. really attached to the idea either to me it seemed like a really easy tool to like in the white lotus with the murder mystery element that seemed to be the kind of weapon that they were firing in the same sense um but it does have this like ominous presence and that little girl is a wonderful actress and i was amazed and obsessed with her and then when she, it's revealed that it was just a tiktok trend that she was <laughs> repeating i was like screaming at the accuracy of that as well well the um the the scary synths throughout it that actually made the curse seem seem really eerie at times even though i didn't really think there was a real curse but just i the love music the, the music horror. for this yeah yeah because one of point right. never didn't do it but he had so he he executive produced the album and had someone else do it but the music is like this like synth church choir from hell and it's so stressful and creepy and um at times like really beautiful and eye-opening and makes it feel extraordinarily grandiose despite the fact that this is fundamentally a show about an hgtv production <laughs> i know and um one of my favorite scenes actually is at the the beginning of the the final episode and they really i think um <gasps> smashed covid culture when they're doing the rachel ray show oh. to promote their hgtv thing but it's during covid era which was clearly a conscious choice and everyone is in the audience with masks on social distance orange masks <laughs> ugly orange todd haynes safe masks hideous and they're all kind of just like clapping like fucking lemmings and all of these stupid rules that don't exist and then instead of having whitney and asha in studio like you would on a talk show they come on the giant screen which you remember on wendy williams and all the talk shows back mm -hmm. during COVID, everyone had to come in on a fucking zoom screen with the Nicki minaj and... music video guest appearance screen that just like became like the lingua franca of like covid media appearances well there's this there's this terrifying um scene from the kelly clarkson talk show that was during COVID where they just had all these floating monitors of, you know, people watching from home on their Zoom things, like clapping to Kelly, like like they were in a cult. Like it, it's really unsettling. I'll, have, <laughs> I'll find it and I'll send it to you after this, honestly, because you look at it and you're like, I cannot believe like we lived in this world. And obviously, um, you know, the curse was filmed 
post COVID, I assume um, that was obviously there on purpose to just rail against COVID culture. And when you have them on the screen and it creates such a disconnect between the host, Rachel Ray and them, and she's sort of disinterested in them and she's not even looking at them while they're on the screen. She's staring into her camera to the audience and they're sort of off to the side. And then she just ends up completely ignoring them for mm. the guy from the Sopranos who's actually there in person with her. Um, so she's interacting with them. And I just thought that was such a perfect snapshot of COVID craziness. And it was vicious towards it and so mocking and sneering. And of course, I didn't see a mention of that in the finale recaps from the New Yorker, et cetera. Oh, because no. of course, all of all of those journalists two years ago were getting paid to write how you were killing grandma if you didn't social distance. And yeah, wear if, you, if you if you went to Christmas, you're murdering grandma, like <laughs> yeah. for real. And there is, you know, I mentioned like the Sodom and Gomorrah thing, but the way that this kind of evokes like this biblical hell on earth that is about to be spited by God, um, and doing that through the cow pasture of COVID masks is so shocking i couldn't believe it those orange ugly field of masks and um that episode every um intro sequence of the curse in the the first like 20 minutes of the episode or whatever the frame melts into a strange refracted fun house mirror of itself and in the last episode it's of that black covid mask and it's creepy it's gross and i it really touched my heart to see someone portray that as it actually felt and not as the fantasy that it's been in every everything else if it's going to exist at all and that was so real that was one of the best like truly that intro i mean i know the finale has divided people but that intro on the rachel ray show with the covid masks and stuff was like fucking genius like it was so amazing and actually as soon as it opened up with that and it flashed to the crowd in the masks i like screeched in like laughter and like joy as well mm. because i'm like yes they're fucking up the COVID people too. Like they'd already gone through the the liberal Karens and the snobby uh, immigrant, you know, artists and the Jews and like everyone, they were like plowing through. And then when they got to the fucking COVID people, I was like, yeah, thank, thank you, Lord. I mean, I'm just like, this is, this is the best thing I've seen in so long. Do you know what's amazing is that the only like diversity section of people that this TV series does not attack is the LGBT. And I was so elated about that because I've had enough comment about gay people from media for the next 15 years. I don't need to see another person of any of that depicted in film ever again, honestly. And I don't think there's a single gay person on the show. Yeah, that is, that's actually so true. There's no queerness at all which is so refreshing and that's obviously that's intentional for sure because i think they they recognize that at this point it's become low-hanging fruit and totally. um it, it's become too obvious i mean look they could have i can imagine if they had stuck a trans character in this somewhere it would have been funny as hell like i mean i would have died and loved it but I think it's even edgier to have just completely left it out because it's like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go after race and 
liberals and and COVID, and we're not going to do the let's mock a tranny because everyone's done that at this it's point. It's too it's easy to death, and there's no pedophilia freakouts either. There's like no pedophilia <laughs> panic. There's like maybe there's like a few scenes that are like tense between Dougie and the little girl, but oh it's my not... god, that was so when Dougie went into her bedroom to change the light um to, to change the the smoke alarm and then he's trying to get her to curse him mm. that is so i was that was so unbearable yeah watch. that's one of the most unpleasant things i've ever seen ever and when she just screams in fear it actually feels real because i would have yeah and it, it's funny because it's not like pedophilia it's just as like human beings fail like failing to um treat each other correctly and to act correctly in the social like apparatus and the total failure of that is so ugh, it's so but it feels so bad. Like we obviously it's menacing. Know yeah, we know that he's not a pedophile, and we know that this scene isn't set up for him to be a pedophile. But the fact that it's a grown man in a little girl's room, and that he's lied to get in there, and he's trying to get something from her, even though the scene has nothing to do with that, it still invokes the same unsettling creepiness and disgustingness mm. as, as if it was a scene about pedophile about pedophilia. Like it feels like it is, even though it's not. One of the things that this show also picks up on that I think is really genius is the hierarchy of women and men in the 21st century because once again the green queen is the horribly titled flipanthropy i can't say the word no one can flipanthropy yeah no one that, can. <laughs> having that show retitled to be the green queen and then trying to put emma stone's whitney character as kind of this uh polyan matriarch of like the chthonian swamp and like stinky forest of the vagina and motherhood and like <laughs> the Venus of Willendorf. Um, her husband, Asher, as played by Nathan Fielder, is uh, literally a cuckold with a micro penis that they show on screen. And his uh, whimpering respect for her and his relationship with her is one of the most elucidating and perfect representations of hetero heterosexual relationships I've ever seen. It's amazing. I was like, <laughs> I could not believe they made him a cuck. Which that's very like right wing coded too, because that's totally a, that's a, a right wing. Right... That's a yeah, it totally is. And for them to stick that in there, um, and and the scene where she overhears him, I'm not sure if he's on the phone or if he's talking to himself. I wasn't he's... sure either. But he's basically verbalizing a sexual fantasy of um, this guy from his work fucking his wife. And he's like, you're so fucking ugly and my wife's so fucking hot. You want to fuck her, don't you? And Whitney just kind of gets this look of horror. That's, again, another time when it feels like she a horror gives movie. The look that, feels too, like, yeah. that feels like Rosemary's baby of when she's <laughs> like, something's wrong with my, you know, and I'm stuck in the house. Like, Yeah, she's <laughs> stuck thing. in the passive home, which is brilliantly yes. titled, of course. She's stuck in the passive home, like sitting on the bed, looking at the wall in mortal terror about the nightmarish situation she's stuck in as her husband is like fantasizing about being cuckolded. Um, <laughs> In the first episode, there is that vibrator sequence when they're like, when they're like, oh, we're going to be get frisky tonight, you and me, my sexy special wife. And then it's that terribly prolonged scene with the vibrator as they're narrating a cuckold fantasy. Um, this is really right and true about how uh, women covet men these days. And it feels like between the HGTV show and the success 
of the passive home and a submissive cuckolded husband. She really has like this total fantasy at the beginning of the show of everything she could want. And then she has that blank look of death in her eyes because she's so unhappy with this fantasy kingdom she set, set up for herself. Yeah, and as for the um the HGTV thing, by the way, as someone that has been around a lot of reality stuff, I'm trying to make a show myself. I work with mm. these people. I know producers. Like, it, that's so fucking accurate. Like, that's literally what it's like. That's what the people are like. That's what it's like making a TV show. Um, that was so... I mean, everything about this is so fucking true to life. Every single detail. It's like the most... The realest thing put to fucking film in so long. And that cuckold sex scene I watched with my mother because... No. Yes. I love that. She was here and I'm like, we're trying to find something to watch. And she said that I could choose... I'm like, oh, you know, I want to watch this show that I heard was good. And she's like, okay. And then that, you know, prolonged thing of him down and doing her with the vibrate. Ugh. And I'm, and the scenes drag on for so long. And I'm just like, please, God. And she's like, Jacques, like, what are you making me watch? And it's so funny, my mom's reaction to the first episode. She didn't watch anything past that. Um, my mom, like, she's not the sharpest tool in the shed. And the thing with her is that, like, <laughs> She's she's almost like I'm trying to say it in like a nice way. She's below the level of being like I had to turn it off because I didn't get it. She <laughs> like we were talking about bovines before. <laughs> she just kind of was like, Oh yeah, it was like a bit slow, but it was funny. Like, you know, like nothing. Oh, she's not understanding anything, but she's just thinking it's kind of like quirky That's and sweet. like a bit funny. And like, you know, it's a bit slow, but I could still watch it. I hope she does. <laughs> yes. I told her to actually. I would love I to see her, her get through the whole thing. I said keep watching it. I mean, she would have freaked at the finale, but like she would have been like, I oh, that was shit. But um yeah, I was urging her to continue watching it. Yeah, there's another element to the Asher character that is really exciting, which is his seething anger that comes up out of nowhere and you are constantly watching him like... Someone's screaming outside. Oh, I can't hear anything, but... Okay, it stopped. Okay. How tall are you, by the way? I'm... 180 centimeters. Oh, okay. Why? Do I seem tall? <laughs> no, yeah, I was just trying to figure it out. I'm like, I can't tell if you're tall or short. <laughs> I'm just, you know, it's not, you know, that's tall. I think it's kind of tall, but I wouldn't say such a thing. <laughs> um, you know, but like his seething rage and his um constant like fighting and like repressing his male sensibility of being angry and sexual is very satisfying to see as well. And it really sets the stage for everything else that happens during the show. Well, he yeah, he's like an incel. Like he's like a fucking angry incel deep down. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it bubbles up. He was such a good actor. I mean, I don't know how many, like, the variety of roles that he could play, but... The New York Times shit on him, and they called his performance, like, one note and, like, simplified. And I was like, like, he just plays awkward. And I'm like, 
No, you can like literally watch the precise mechanisms of his interior rage boiling to the surface and exploding from time to time in these like misogynistic spouts of horror when he's like attacking the TV reporter, calling people bitches, um, the woman uh, who they're trying to sell the house to. It's brilliant. I, I can't believe the New York Times wrote that. I didn't know that bit. Yeah, it makes me angry because I just think like you guys don't even fucking deserve to watch to be this. Writing about yeah, you don't get show. to write about that's, this. This isn't for you. <laughs> Period. It's like just actually just ignore it. Just go review, like you know whatever the new Marvel thing is or whatever the um, you know the chick from Broad City, whatever the fuck she's doing now. Like yeah, do a piece on that. Like, yeah, let's hear about that. About this that's for you. Um, the curse is for. Uh, podcast contrarians and for no one else thank you <laughs> period <laughs> so let's talk about the elephant in the room which is the last episode of the show um no one saw this coming and it has certainly divided people jack and i have talked a little bit about it and he hates it uh, i know and thinks it's like a complete failure of the show i liked it quite a bit i was really compelled by it and i think probably the most uncomfortable i've been made by a piece of art in recent memory is the shot that slowly pans up from Whitney sleeping on the bed to Nathan pinned to the ceiling. And it actually really got under my skin and frightened me. Yeah, I'm actually in the middle with the ending. So I watched the finale sort of right before we recorded. Um, and, you know, I'd already seen Jack's takes. I'd seen his tweet about how awful it was. And it actually was funny because episode nine, I thought that was the finale and I didn't realize there was an episode after episode nine because episode nine has a pretty incredible. I mean, that ending is, is just something else. Field of crying. Um, I mean, basically he sees an unedited cut of the show of Whitney talking all this shit about him and it's actually the truth of how she really feels about him mm. and it's really devastating and he flees the room and then he comes back in like 30 seconds later um debasing himself and giving this saying, six minute humiliation monologue in which he completely sacrifices all of his dignity to be a perma slave to Whitney and it's very upsetting and disturbing and one of Emma Stone's greatest acting moments, I'm sure, in her entire uh, oeuvre because that face she makes says everything uh, without articulating any of it in words. It's um, extraordinary. And he's just devoting himself to her and he may as well be wearing a padlock around his neck um, and be, you know, mistress and slave. And he's crying and he's giving an incredible performance as well. Um, it's chilling and then it just ends abruptly. And I thought, wow, that was a, what an amazing ending. And then I was listening to Jack's episode on TPN and then he starts <laughs> talking about him getting stuck on the roof. And I'm like, oh, there's another episode. Um, you know, I haven't fully, I haven't fully processed it yet. I don't know how I feel. I mean, I did feel like it went on a little bit too long with the being stuck on the roof, et cetera. Um, you know, it, I mean, it was kind of farcical and funny, but I was a bit like, "All right." Well, so you thought it was you it. thought it was funny because I was scared. I was I was really upset by it. Actually, I don't know why. I think it was. I mean, I think there were parts of it that were meant to be funny with the like get the oh, phone yeah. and and that, but um, it wasn't really making me laugh. But I could see the intention. Um, 
And yeah, I I don't know what to think of it yet. I read the, the New Yorker seemed to have like a decent write up on it. I feel like it's something that could age well. It's something I need to revisit. It's something I need to sit with. Um, I don't think, I definitely don't think that it ruined the show. Um, yeah, but I'm still sitting with it. I'm still sitting with it. It's been um, almost a week since I watched it. I, I, yeah, I guess it was six days ago that I watched it. But my takeaway was that I actually thought it was a, a really interesting kind of elevation of the biblical tenor of the rest of the show that this unbelievable sort of like holy and divine intervention could occur um, in the context of these people's lives. Because I think the world as we know it now is like so divorced from the spiritual extremities of things that happen in the Bible. And it's so impossible to perceive or imagine these kinds of nightmarish fates that await people all across like the Old Testament, especially, you know, that seeing it applied to this like bogus, stupid world of the 21st century is kind of cutting and refreshing in a way I, I never would have expected. And yeah, it does seem a little unearned without any doubt. And it is so out of left field, but the music is so convincing and like the commitment to the workings of these physics, it's really beautifully shot and watching uh, Whitney and Asher hang on each other suspended in midair as their uh, weights are counterbalanced and then watching them rip apart and collapse each different way is like the perfect depiction of their relationship to me and that one shot is so gross it's like a contemporary art sculpture that I I was sold yeah, um, I think it'll. I think it will age well because I think the show will age incredibly well. And I, I just you know, I'm still trying to figure out like, are they playing 4D chess? And we just have to kind of catch up with what they were doing with the finale, or is it is it just a little bit of a mess? Um, there's a lot of ways you could have ended the show because you could have ended it just on episode nine. You also could have done the whole Rachel Ray thing just yeah. like for the whole episode. Yeah, you could have literally just done that and then had the last thing of. I mean, how good was it when the, um, the the camera woman was asking for consent every time she had to oh, move? Oh, brilliant! Like, <laughs> <laughs> you could have ended around there and then just had them, maybe when they sat down and they were talking about Kara, <laughs> how um, she was like, you know, she was saying that you know our show is not even on network television; it's on. HGTV, HGTV Go. Go Plus or something. <laughs> and then she's like, and Kara got written up in the New York Times for quitting art. And <laughs> she's complaining. <laughs> she's complaining. And like, you could have like even had that um, without, and then went to bed and then without the getting stuck on the set. I think there's a lot of different ways that you could have ended it. Um, yeah. Well, I think that and- it's really interesting what they do with Whitney in the finale as well, because the sort of cliffhanger from the ninth episode, or eighth, I don't remember how many episodes this is, but it kind of is this pendulous question is if she's going to actualize herself and get rid of all of this decoration of her life, of her social justice activism and her adopted Jewish identity that she wears like the Star of David for, despite evidently not giving a fuck at all, if she's going to give up on her falsity of artistic interest and also her fake relationship with her husband that she doesn't love. You are wondering all of that in that last monologue. And then to see her go straight back into it and then 
only find joy and happiness and truth in motherhood is like a very trad it's it, um, i mean it's trad and it also i think is like this really nasty portrayal of her because there's all sorts of things she could have done to become an actualized real person within like the frames of her life that had been established thus far but only in like birth and in the death of her cock husband does she like become like this like sinister green queen yeah um yeah no no you're totally right i just i need to i, need I know to sit it's, with it's, it it's, it's some floating more. there no no but i i liked I, I I definitely didn't hate it as much as as Jack did. Besides being <laughs> bored because it just kept going on and on, um, for a while. And I'm kind of actually excited. I want to rewatch the show, which I don't rewatch that many things, especially not immediately. And I'm already I already feel compelled to like go through it again. Yeah, me too. It was so good, and I kind of want to like analyze it more, and I want to read like other people's takes about it. And it's been a really long time since. Uh, a show has made me want to do that. Yeah, I was really happy I got to watch it week to week as it was coming out. And above all else, I'm really happy that we got to have this like final image of American masculinity in its current condition, which is a frozen corpse in fetal position wearing a rainbow t-shirt and ugly gym shorts floating in space. And no matter how ridiculous the finale is, like crystallizing that is this portrait of what horror we've made on earth is like enough for me to totally buy in yeah actually when you frame it like that i'm like that is kind of <laughs> the costuming is grotesque on him in that like frumpy rainbow like national park shirt and like gym shorts it's, he's just like hovering in space it's like this really is how far we've drifted from the divine and the sublime and like beautiful human experience is like ugly t-shirt fetal position in space and i think colder men with everyone just, being yeah. everyone's a bottom and you know it's like a nation of fucking bottoms like straight men are bottoms like oh yeah and like more all than of, gays probably no without a doubt i mean gay men can actualize themselves and like really do stuff with their life i think in a lot of ways i mean we were talking earlier about how like the most disgusting element of the show is like the npc ambiance that pervades every corner of it and gay guys are usually quite good at being able to turn their lives into fantasy at least a little bit um but i have a lot the of the ones that don't sorry to interrupt you but the ones that don't are the worst it's so depressing <laughs> those are the worst ever it's so those are scream gays like scream gays are those ones <laughs> like that <laughs> yeah you could make a whole the curse about scream gays and like <laughs> you could think at least the scream yeah. the scream gays are at least hot though and they're getting fucked like the um you know like you know like the small town grinder they always <gasps> have the jokes of that of like the horrors that you see on a small town oh like, i that's, know i saw it all <laughs> when you went back to oregon yeah when i get like, hired to be the showrunner for the curse season two i'm gonna make it about small town grinder and like the accounts that i can remember off the top of my head being like uh faceless accounts with the caption in all caps rape me and then latino bottom wearing uh crossdresser panties and just like pot bellies on all sorts of ethnicities like that's that's the curse but <laughs> it's always the crossdresser panties it's always the trucker in cheap women's panties 
And I'm so fascinated by it because I don't kind of understand where I don't it comes get it. from and why it's that specific aesthetic and why that aesthetic is so sort of like prevalent. Like there's it's so everywhere. many of them. And it's the like you yeah, but you know <laughs> that that's the real curse. I curse Truck you. Is in <laughs> <laughs> but like you even you in America, right? You've seen it, and then mean small town Australia. I've like we've all wherever you are in the world, you've seen the trucker in the panties, and yes. it's like, why is this happening? But I wanted to say this because I have a lot of straight girlfriends, and they a lot of them are green queens, and like they insist on cuckolded boyfriends who have like foot fetishes and are like desperate to be you know, ridiculed by them and do all their shopping and show up to them at the slightest inconvenience to console them and be their perpetual manservant jester baby. And seeing that character literalized and then elevated to this biblical hierarchy of images, I think is really exciting. And I want I want more of that tenor of art to exist now because we have let the shallowness of human life and the ease of it in this uh, century to leak into our art and create this a-spiritual and anti-sublime kind of blandness. And I want to be able to reach those like dramatic heights again. So even if it's not totally successful, like I like the gesture of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fine with something that even if it's not perfect, even if it kind of like fumbles the bag a little bit, so to speak, at least it was like trying something different. Like I don't look at it as a, I don't look at the finale as a complete failure. Um, Then, you know, they might've like (laughs) thrown a little bit too much at the wall with it, but I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Also when about cuckolded men, you know, I mentioned Iggy Azalea's only fans earlier in this episode and it's funny because she did an interview, right? And she was saying how one of the biggest requests she gets and where she makes most of her money on OnlyFans is just men DMing her to humiliate them and to tell them how small their dicks are and, like, that they have a micro penis and how pathetic they are. I mean, I couldn't believe she admitted that. It was like, girl, don't tell people that. Don't publicly. tell people that. You you want yeah. everyone to imagine that, like, the, the Saudi and, like, the Dubai guys are the ones in your DMs, okay? Like, yes. not that. <laughs> Not not guys wanting to be fucking called a micro penis. I think she'd have a few drinks when she admitted it. But yeah, it's and when I think about all of that, honestly, I think of that and I think of the the truckers in the panties, and then I think of Nathan Fielder's character and the cuckold. I'm like, yeah, it's it's a nation of bottoms. The nation of bottoms and a nation of uh, looming scary people on the fringes of society in rundown houses and chewing the cud and looking lifelessly at the camera as they fail to process information so I mean, and pouring over the borders and uh squatting in houses i mean one of the the amazing scenes i think this was in the finale as well actually is when, when they, they give him the house yeah they gift the african refugee or immigrant or whatever migrant whatever he is they he's been squatting in their house and they've been letting him stay there and, you know, fixing the place up for him. And then they give him the house and he doesn't even thank them. At first he complains that if he's, he's going to have to pay the property taxes and they're like, oh, we can pay it. And then he wants it in cash. So he's like fleecing them. And um, that was 
I mean, you know, again, not to be PC, but obviously not all immigrants are fucking, you know, grifters like that. Like I know me. many that would be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There'll be many that would be, you know, very thankful. But yes, there there are portions of these people that are kind of like selfish and they just want to suckle at the teat of America and um want everything handed to them like there was a great story in the new york post and to be honest the new york post like i mean they sensationalize everything and so you have to take it with a grain of salt but it was the migrants in new york and um they were turning down all of the free like they were being housed for free in hotels or whatever because they're getting bussed in by the thousands and they get free accommodation and food and they were just turning down the food because they didn't like the food. They thought it was, uh, wasn't was healthy enough because there was a lot of like donuts and different things like that. And they didn't want it. Um, and they were complaining and they're going out and buying their own food and stuff. And it's like, yeah, you have people that have illegally come into the country, you know, because I almost take it a little bit personally just because I've been fucking fighting tooth and nail to get to the US mm. for over six months and I'm getting transferred via my job that I've had for like eight years and I've like climbed up the ranks there and I'm still like paranoid. I was telling you, I think on Sirens, I yeah, have this like weird fear I'm going to get cancelled for being too outspoken and not get a visa and for saying that the, you know, the election was rigged and stuff that I won't get <laughs> let into America. And then you have people that come in illegally and they're- Get a house. You know, you, yeah, they get a house and they get food and then the food's not good enough and they're turning it down. And like, that was the fucking guy in the curse. Well, this show has definitely been the abject mirror, very intense to watch, horrifying, and one of the most scathing depictions of reality as we know it um but this season the show is all about fighting to survive so did you get anything from this that's going to help you push forward in this troubling existence and cultural climate we're in um did i i'm trying to think no i think i mean I th no, I think it made me do some self-reflection in that, well, I definitely saw myself in Dougie. Even some of the, like, tacky clothes he was wearing, like, at the end, he sort of has these, like, cowboy boots and, like, this flannel shirt and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's, like, you know, hipster fight. And I'm like, I would totally wear that. And um, and all of the, all the rings, these big silver rings he wears on his hands. And I love jewelry. I can just never find any way to get good male jewelry. And I always think to myself, I should buy some more rings. But I wasn't disturbed right here. too. Which, yeah. <laughs> like, I want to get more, but I don't know where to get male jewelry from, but I want more. Um, but I definitely looked at Whitney and um, some parts of her, and I could see some parts of myself like i was saying to you i've like turned into such a blue-haired activist over palestine um and like just lately and just other things and like i don't know i feel it's, it's weird coming to america right because when you're like not from america i don't know how japan views america but like i feel like most people outside of america are very against america's like foreign policy just generally all the fucking wars they start and mm -hmm. stuff and um, I feel kind of like a weirdly conflicted about going there. And I was looking at Whitney a lot and I was just reflecting on myself a bit and like some of the things that she was doing, I'm like, is that how I look? If I get, 
you know what I mean? Like anytime mm. I'm into something that's a little social justice or like progressive or whatever, I'm like, is that who I am? Um, so I don't know if it drove me to survive, but it it made me do a little self-reflection. And the jury's still out. I think that's great. The jury's still out. But I mean, once you get to America, then that's going to be the real test. And my best of luck to you in that regard. <laughs> but I will say for me, I think kind of along what you're saying, it's that in order to have a meaningful existence on Earth, uh, you have to kind of reject these systems of political thinking and the you have to be able to step away from the static noise and aura that's always levitating in the air of having to conduct your behavior based around appeasing the norms of others and you actually have to reach into the phenomenon of human biology and actually experience like live real green queen moments of like giving birth and being in actual love and experiencing real passion all stuff i know but nonetheless this is one of the best shows i've seen in ages i'm so glad it exists yeah, well, thank you for having me on. And hopefully I get some love and passion in the US and get an American husband. So if there's anyone listening in the States over 30, um, hit me up when I get there next month. Perfect. Well, those who don't fight won't survive. <laughs> Here we go. To support the continuation of your favorite online experimental art audio project, Please pledge $5 to I'm So Popular on patreon.com slash I'm So Popular. The bonus episodes of the show, the essential untouched continuation sirens, as well as access to the Discord and Chi-Chi's book club. Ja, matane. Kimeta, you